Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi. I'm the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm uh, joined uh, as per usual by Ryan Sweet, uh, director of real-time economics. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. How's your week, Mark? Uh, it went fast, Ryan. I was in Milwaukee for a couple of days for a board meeting, uh, made it there and back. Uh, pretty quiet in Milwaukee, too, I'd have to say. Uh, but uh, but that was a good week. Where's the cowbells, Ryan? They're right over there. Can you see them? No, you need to pull those uh, out. Give me a second. You, you, you I, need to, I can you, see you, cowbells. Yeah. Do you see the cowbells? So I did, you, yes. So, so if you get... Oh, by the way, listener, uh, Kevin's jumping the gun here, but we got Kevin Hassett here today as a guest. We're going to introduce him formally in just a minute, uh, but we're uh, really honored in, to have him with us. So, uh, welcome, Kevin, and I'm going to I'm going to grill you in just a minute. So, uh, hang on. Sure. But these cowbells are key, Kevin, because we play this game here on Inside Economics uh, with the statistics, and if if only if if Mark gets it right. Do we ring the cowbells? Okay. <laughs> you now, if Ryan gets it right, I mean, what's the big deal? He knows. He knows all the statistics. He's supposed to know else. this stuff. That's He's right. supposed to know this stuff exactly. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to be in the office. I would have dropped him off. <clears throat> yeah, and I came in because I wanted to be with uh, Chris. Chris, where you're not? Where are you? You're back at home. Is that where you are? Yeah. Uh, the fourth floor is actually closed in the office oh. today. So it is. It is. I, I didn't know yeah. that. They're doing some repair work. So. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I had to come in because uh, we're doing major surgery on my electrical system in my house. So I have no power in the house, no internet, no nothing. So I made it way, made it my way to the office. And that's Chris Dorides. Uh, you heard Chris's voice. He's the uh, deputy chief economist. And uh, looks like you're in fine form, Chris. I'm the one who's wearing the geeky shirt today. Uh, Chris is in... Looks like James Bond, you know. Little uh, role reversal today. So. Yeah, a little role yeah. reversal. Yeah, well, well, good. Well, uh, welcome, Chris, thanks. and Kevin. It, Kevin, so good to have you here. Uh, thanks for joining Great us. Here. Great. Yeah, I think you and I almost have the same geeky shirt on, actually. I, I know we're we're uh, <laughs> yeah, we're uh, two geeky guys on this. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I am a geeky guy, so there's no there's no way around it. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's what it is. And uh, where are you joining us from, Kevin? Are you from in DC? Oh, I'm just uh, in my kitchen. Yeah, you, you see, my uh, wife has our kitchen filled with her chicken and rooster collection. And so, uh, given the supply chain disruption, we might end up having to eat that guy back there. <laughs> so, so when you're on TV, but yeah, I'm in my kitchen in DC. When you're on TV, do you do you do it from that venue, or do you go somewhere else? I, you know, lately they've been sending trucks to the house. Like you oh. could be a little far away from the city, but here in DC, uh, like if you see me on TV in the last month, you would I would have been in a van. Uh, but I have different parts of the house that are set up better for shots than the kitchen. But uh, the kitchen is where all the work gets done right now. It, it is actually a supply chain story too, because uh, I. We did a little renovation because we're an empty nest now, and I uh, bought some new office furniture like last February, and it's still not here. <laughs> oh, is that right? Last yeah, it's a, February. And, yeah, and so, so I'm literally like working at the kitchen table most of the time because I don't have a desk. <laughs> oh, my goodness. that That is a supply chain problem. I wonder what part of the world yeah. that's coming from. Yeah. Uh, New York State. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Can't get the trucker. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you familiar with uh, Room Raider? Uh, you know, have you seen this? Uh, uh, oh yeah, I don't think the, I've had, you know been embarrassed by not rated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, 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 they like. I have a home in Vero, and I did some interviews down there. They love that venue. They hate my home, and I wonder what they would rate this. This is my office, by the way. That's my mom's 
for all the YouTubers out there, that's my mom did the um, the big wreath back there. So the I, oh. yeah, she's a little bit of an artist. So but, so it's your mom made the wreath. The wreath isn't your mom. That, that for a minute, so that's my mom. Right? Uh, yeah, that would be scary. That would be scary. Right. Well, Kevin, so so good to have you. We've been yeah. friends for a long time. I can't even Indeed. remember you know when we first met, but it would have been the late nineties. Yeah, and uh, you know you've had such a great career, uh, still uh, uh, doing lots of different things. Um, you were at AEI for a while. You were, you were director of economic research and studies there, and that and you you'd have this great meeting every year where you get oh sure that uh, first at Beaver Creek and then at Sea Island. Yeah, you'd get. Um, uh, some some D's, some R's, a, a lot of Republicans on the uh, in the Senate and the House, and it was great. Several days of policy and politics, and just a really fun time. Yeah. And you you invited me to a number of those functions, and that, I really appreciate. Yeah, you did well. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did my best to, you know, kind of take it right up to the line, but not go too far, you know, with the D stuff. So it was. I thought it was pretty good, and then. Uh, you were uh, on the Council, Council of Economic Advisors. You're the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors mm -hmm. under President Trump. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How, can you, or how, how was sure. that? Sure. Well, it, it's actually kind of interesting, like how I got drawn into that. The uh, One of the things, because you and I actually worked on the McCain campaign together long, long ago. Oh, that's uh, where we that's really right. got to know each other, right? Yeah, I think we had met before then. Uh, yeah. But but basically, one of the things that really bugged me about economic policymaking in the U.S. is that there are a few places with these sort of black box scoring models. So I know you guys actually are one of those places uh, now. Uh, but that if you don't have a black box, then developing policy, you're really at an extreme disadvantage. And back when you were helping us with the McCain campaign, you know, like the Bush guys had hired every single uh, person that would model anything <laughs> right yeah. in 2000. I don't know if you helped us in 2000. It might be you came for 08. I don't know if you were there in 2000. It was 08, not but, 2000. But, yeah. but, the, but, you know, if the candidate wants to propose something, then, you know, the numbers kind of got to add up. But if you don't have a big model, then how are you going to make a proposal where the numbers add up? And then when the numbers don't add up, then the media just beats the crap out of you. So, so anyway, so what I did is I reverse engineered, you know about this, I, I reverse engineered the Joint Tax Committee and CBO uh, creating this website called the Open Source Policy Center. And the basic idea was to make it so that anybody, you know, anyone listening right now, you know, uh, uh, could come up with their own tax plan and then get like the distribution tables and the revenue costs and what and you could dynamic score if you want. There are a lot of different models merged to it and so on. And so the idea was to democratize policy debate and make it so Democrats, Republicans, independents, anybody who wants to could formulate a plan and sort of know what the official score would look like, uh, you know, really almost instantly. And so I built that uh, website and pretty much every presidential campaign in the last cycle was using it uh, to mm. some extent. And also we could sort of see that mm. a lot of people in government are using it. Even a lot of people at Joint Tax Committee use that's our software now because it's easier to use than their software. Mm. You know, Kevin Brady at Ways and Beads started, you know, he had all of his staff trained up on scoring things with the Open Source Policy Center. And then when Joint Tax disagreed with the score, then he would ask them to explain why and sort of kind of opened up the black box oh, a little cool. bit over time. But what happened was that you might recall that in the campaign, the Trump administration had some proposals where the numbers were just like 
totally out of line. Yeah. Uh, and they had like the classic, you know, it's happened to lots of campaigns, a lot of news stories about how they don't have a clue about what they're doing, you know, that kind of stuff. And so just a, a friend of uh, Jared Kushner's uh, who knows me said, oh, well, you should get someone connected to the open source policy center and use that thing. And then your numbers will be fine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they called me up and then um, I actually knew a guy. Turns out the Joint Economic Committee had just changed chairs and a bunch of the career staffers at the Joint Economic Committee got let go. Uh, including a guy named Jeff Schlagadoff. You probably know Jeff because mm-hmm. you know he's right mm-hmm. in the middle of. You know, they're like the economic think tank for Congress. And so I told the Trump campaign, hire Schlagadoff. He knows how to run OSPC, and your numbers will be fine. Uh, and so then from then on, you know, basically they didn't. Yeah, you know, they certainly got in a lot of trouble for a lot of other things. <laughs> but you know, if they Not said something that. was three, if they said something was three, it was three. And and, and so then uh, after yeah. the president won, he's kind of like, oh, that guy that fixed our numbers, he should be CEA chair. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't even work for the campaign or anything. I, I literally was just running this website for all the campaigns. Uh, but then I, I might even talk to you about it, that, that I thought that at some point, you know, serving your country, it's a real honor. And uh, absolutely. Yeah, I probably wouldn't get another opportunity to. And so and so I decided, even though I didn't come in as, you know, like you might recall that when they nominated me, I was being attacked at Breitbart. <laughs> and Lou Dobbs has said that, you know, Trump is double-crossed his voters by picking Hassett. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't catch that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, so, so I, you know, I wasn't necessarily a natural fit, but I loved it. Ended up being close friends with the president. And, uh, you know, I hope you get to serve, serve in the White House someday. Oh, soon. you're very kind. Well, thank goodness that you did. I mean, uh, really with all your talent and skill, the, the nation really uh, needed your help. Um, and I'm it's just, Good of you to serve. So uh, thank you for all that. And sure. then you you left, and then you came back, and you were a special. I think the the right senior you, advisor. It's actually like the, about the highest title yeah. you can have in the White House. It, it, and and the interesting thing is because like the Council of Economic Advisors is spelled with an E, advisors. Uh, but if you're a senior advisor, then it's an O R at the end. <laughs> and so I think I might be the only person in U.S. history to have both been an advisor and an advisor. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably true right i mean it, it's uh, probably it's a, yeah. very, a very unique status uh, but but uh, seriously uh the um early in january already it was like clear to me that the covid thing was going to be a big deal you would have seen me on cnn um talking about how bad the pandemic was going to be and how uh gdp already in january my gdp estimate for second quarter was minus 30 something percent uh you know i could run you through the math that got us there i probably you and i probably even talked about it at the time but um you know i think that when it became clear that that was true and then the president sort of knew me well and trusted me you know the task force had basically no data operation um and so like the first time i went to a task force meeting you know dr burks who's a wonderful person i love her and i think that she kind of got uh you know mm-hmm. some, some some bad things she got the short shrift at the end of that mm-hmm. i think she was a really american hero but but she was literally making charts with a pencil <laughs> you know and, and then uh, so my main job was one to help uh design the stimulus stuff uh but two to help like create a data operation for for the task force so that they could actually keep track of things and so as an example uh while i was there our team uh all of a sudden i'm I'm sitting in my office and and, uh somebody says oh cuomo is on the line 
And, you know, at, at that point, New York was really, really in bad shape. Yeah. Um, and, and they said that he needs us to send him 40,000 ventilators. And uh, we only had 10,000 ventilators in, in the stockpile. Uh, and so, like, how am I going to send him 40,000 ventilators? And so then um, I got the idea that the Medicare billing data, because I'm in the White House, so I can sort of get access to just mm-hmm. about every data you need with a stroke of the presidential pen. I got the Medicare billing data, which is for every hospital in the country, three times a day. They actually pay them three times a day. Really? And it says basically, so that first thing I did is I looked at like, what's the maximum number of ventilators ever built in a day? And then I looked, well, how many did they build yesterday? And so then I could find like the empty ventilators. Uh, and so then we could actually call up hospitals and send FEMA people like to move ventilators from places that had low capacity to places. And ventilators are basically what you need to have an ICU bed. Uh, but then when we called the hospitals, they would sort of say, hey, well, yeah, but maybe we're going to need that ventilator three weeks from now. This is a pandemic. So why should I lend it to New York? And so actually Everett Eisenstadt worked with me at the National Economic Council and was the head of the D.C. office for General Motors. And so I called up Everett and I said, you know, air filters, ventilators, you know, maybe you guys could make ventilators. Right. And so he talked to the General Motors people and they actually really quickly started making ventilators like they're an incredible industrial company. And um, that made the whole thing work because then you could sort of call up a hospital down the road and say, hey, lend some ventilators you know, to New York. And by the time you might need yours back, if we don't give it to you back, we'll get one from GM and give it to you. And, and, and so like in the middle of a crisis, there were just a million things like that that really required data analysis and economics and so on. And uh, yeah, that, that was what I did uh, oh, when cool. I went back into in the you know second my second uh, trip to the White House, but uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty weird because you know I was on TV a lot uh, and as you know like I always just answer questions truthfully like this White House is pretty disciplined with their talking points like everybody goes on TV says it's a, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated which is completely not true just look at what's going on in the UK right now but everybody says those talking points but I was out there basically just answering questions truthfully. Uh, throughout the COVID crisis, and, uh, mm-hmm. is amazing, you know, sort of <laughs> how, how treacherous the the press could be when you're doing that. Uh, you know, yeah. one, one time there was an outbreak in the White House, uh, and um, you know, a number of people uh, got COVID really early on. I remember that? Yeah. And um, you know, we're basically the the West Wing is pretty fortified. You can't open the windows, right? There's no ventilation, and you're basically working in close quarters doing things like getting ventilators to people so they don't die. And like all around me, there are people getting COVID. And as you know, I've had like heart troubles and stuff like that. And so I'm probably like the guy who, if he died of COVID, then everybody would say, "Well, of course he died." <laughs> you know, he's one of those yeah. pre-existing condition guys. But yeah, I'm going into the West Wing every day anyway because we got to serve our country. And at one point, uh, when uh, I was on, I think CNN, somebody said, well, what's it, what's it like to be in the White House right now? And then I just sort of said, well, yeah, it is scary. There are people getting COVID, but you go to work every day because you got to serve your country. And there are a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people in the armed services that take much bigger risks than, than being around COVID. But then all of a sudden, everywhere, especially the liberal media, is like, Hassett's afraid to go to the White House. <laughs> I remember that. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah I do remember but it was, that. so it's a very weird time. I mean, like yeah. everybody decided to... Uh, fight about COVID instead of work together. Well, I, I know I've told you this before. I'll tell you, say it again. I, you really ought to write a book on your experience. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, th- these stories are invaluable and, you know, highly inter- interesting, but I think, you know, very informative for the, for folks in the future. So. I, I think if I did do that, we would, it would have to have a sufficient amount of time um, 
that, that it's just one of those things. There's all, it's so political still. Yeah, true. Um, Good point. And, and, you know, like, was it the Wuhan lab? Was it not the Wuhan lab? You know, what was Fauci saying about masks? Did Fauci lie to Congress? You know, I was definitely in the Oval when Fauci said 100% it came from a pangolin to the president. Uh, I was in the Oval with Fauci and, and the president when Fauci told the president, for the love of God, don't tell people to wear masks. Uh, that, that that's almost a direct quote because and, and then he actually said if people put a mask on then they're going to be fiddling with the masks and then they'll be touching their face and that'll probably make them more likely to get the fight he thinks explicitly the president will sit and you know, at the resolute desk when Fauci said that to him but then the president goes out and says that and then a week later everybody's criticizing him for it mm. I mean it's a big mistake they should have you know you might recall I was always waving a mask uh, yeah. when I was on TV back then too and masks is sort of an obvious thing. Final thought on that is that economics has a lot to offer this space because there are a lot of things like a mask. The cost of wearing a mask is pretty low, right? The mask itself doesn't cost much. If you got a mask on, you know, like we're all a little bit worse off because we don't get to see the handsome Mark Zandy. But other than that, right, <laughs> the mask hasn't really got much social costs, but it might have a benefit, right? And and so so why not? Why not? Like so so yeah, so, so you should down, really. Right? Yeah, you should really know that there's no benefit at all, like with a high degree of certainty, if you're going to not wear a mask in a circumstance like that. And it just doesn't feel like the sort of cost benefit analysis was something that the health people are trained to do and to think about things, too. Like there are all these supplements that maybe help and maybe don't. But since it's just a supplement, like, why not take some zinc? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now that's and my then, wife's right? attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my uh, I, I didn't shave this morning and I thought I'd shave when I got to the office, but my razor disappeared from my office, so uh, my uh, my interesting, uh, my uh, ugly mug is even uglier this morning. So. I can't tell actually. You can't. Okay, very no. good. Good. Well, good. Well, it, it's a it really a pleasure and th- uh, to have you, and, and thanks for joining us. And uh, sure. I I will be the first in line to buy your book when you write it, but maybe maybe a little bit. Of okay. And uh, we. Uh, we should dive right in. Uh, uh, we got a lot of statistics to talk about. It was a big week for statistics. And is the cowbell ready? Is that <laughs> I, I see it there in the on uh, Ryan's uh, desk over there. So we'll see how it goes. So Ryan, I always begin with Ryan, Kevin, because Ryan is the maven of these statistics. And um, right, Chris? Absolutely. Yeah, undisputed yeah. champion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, undisputed. So, so uh, Ryan, why don't you go first? Right, and let me just out. let me just say this better be about the GDP report. That's all I'm saying. All right, then you might want to start with Chris. Okay, no, go ahead. Phil, go ahead. Fire away. Do you want something related to GDP? Uh, well, no, I don't mean to mess with your, uh, you know, your your uh, your numbers. So you go go ahead. I, I mean, I actually I actually have some pretty good GDP numbers. Do you want me to go okay. first? Yeah, you go first. Hey, let let me go first. I have a good one for you guys. Okay, go, Kevin. Right. You go first. I, like, we'll uh, mix it up. Okay. So I'm going to give you three numbers. Okay. 14, 14%. 14%. 15, 15.3%. And 12.4%. What are those three numbers? Are they annualized? And yeah. Okay. And they, all, yeah, so, they came out this week. So they're the, way, they're the way you would see it at the release. They came out this week, yeah. One of them is intellectual property investment. Nope. No? Mm. No, for, say it's okay. So they came out this week. Uh, these are percentages 14, 15.3, and 12.4. Uh, hmm. 
Uh, that's interesting. And they, do they all come from the same release, Kevin, or are they different releases? They come from the same release, uh, but since you guys are floundering, uh, mm -hmm. I'll say that it's the last three, the current quarter, and then the two quarters before of a number in the release. Okay. Oh, okay. So what was fourteen point five? And so that's fourteen fifty. So what the latest release? It was uh, fourteen. Oh, okay. okay. So so it must be GDP, right? It's got to be GDP. Something in the GDP report, 14%. Yeah, it is something in the GDP report. Yeah. So um, it, it's not in intellectual property because that does feel... That was really strong. Yeah, that was very strong. Yeah, it was, it was well, we were around 12. Yeah, 11-ish, I think, is what yeah. I remember. But yeah. Uh, and these are all positive numbers, no negative numbers. Yeah. Yeah, it's really uh, quite a run, right? Like you don't usually see it at GDP release numbers yeah. like that one after the other. And it wasn't services spending. No, it wasn't that strong. Maybe no, it's something to do with imports, perhaps. Uh, nope, not no? not it. Well, no, no, no. Okay, no. all right, fair enough. I, I don't know. I'm 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 stymied. Do you guys have any clue? Any any no. ideas? You want to ask? Any, you want to give us one more clue that, without giving it away, Kevin? Or is that impossible? To do? Um. Yeah, like like uh, how about this? Has anyone uh, gone to Home Depot lately? Oh, it's uh, it's a, uh, is it really consumption on uh, uh, I don't do they have, oh it's a home it's home remodeling and renovation. Well, it's it's the def Res deflator the 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 inflation rate for oh. residential construction. Oh, oh, that's a good one. oh, 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 that's a good one, though. Those, yeah. those three quarters, though, right? Yeah. I mean, again, you we all love to dig through the numbers, but but looking at that, yeah, and, and so real uh residential investment was down seven percent, but it was because of this deflator. <laughs> that is interesting. So, so this is the measure of inflation. Uh, in the uh, in in home in like building, lumber, and, yeah. So all the building materials, yeah, yeah. exactly, right. Uh, that's a that's a really good one. That is a good one. That is a very good one, and just highlights the uh, impact that supply chain issues are having on pricing, and, and I guess strong yeah. demand as well. As as you point out, we're all been going to Home Depot and Lowe's uh, uh, a lot during. It, the it was actually like there's been a lot of interesting stuff in the space that shows how economics works. Uh, like, uh, you know, so fencing is a lot more expensive. Uh, but one of the ways you can make fencing uh, less expensive is if you, like, have uh, wider boards so that it takes fewer boards. Because each time you nail a board, there's, like, mm -hmm. labor costs for doing that. And so you, if you go look, they've actually, the, the fence boards are wider. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 really. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's because it, like, so it helps reduce the costs. For the, so the soaring materials costs are can be offset by lower labor costs if you make the thing easier to put up. Makes sense. Um, and there's a lot of that going on if you go look. But, but yeah, it's, it's a – it's my whole life I've never seen it like this with oh, uh, yeah. lumber and Although interesting like enough, that. lumber has come in quite a bit. It peaked in May. Sure. I think it was at $1,600 per thousand board feet, and I think we're down to like five $600. Still high compared to yeah. pre-pandemic. So right. despite that, you're still seeing these big increases in building material costs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Have you heard about blue paint? I have not. What is blue paint? There's, there's the blue paint crisis, apparently. The, the paint manufacturers are indicating that the chemicals they need for blue paint are in short supply. They can't find them. So 
they're just not going to produce blue paint apparently for a while. Wow. <laughs> you, you, you know, when I was at the Fed, paint was actually like a really interesting thing for uh, like it's like total esoterica, but that's why we're talking Moody's right now, right? That, but paint is one of those things that's like really costly to ship. Uh, and, and so, but the raw materials, I guess, are not so hard to ship. And so that paint manufacturing is really diffused all over the place. It's kind of like the paint. If you live in Massachusetts, that the paint you're going to put on your walls is probably made in Massachusetts. Uh, and, and so the paint manufacturers are pretty close to where they use the paint. And so paint is one of those things that, that's sort of regionally interesting because it's spread out everywhere and there's sort of uh, paint manufacturing kind of everywhere. And so if you like follow the, you know, paint manufacturers, their earnings reports and things like that, it's a kind of nice, uh, indicator that that's not dependent on local conditions very much because that's, it's that's you know, every, everywhere. Well, it used to be the case, and this this uh, many years ago, maybe two three decades ago, the chief economist at Dupont told me that the most reliable indicator of the business cycle was this chemical that went into making white paint because white paint was used for you know appliances and cars and. You know, off probably you know, titanium dioxide. Oh, that's that was it. It was titanium dioxide. Exactly. He, hey, Ryan, where's your bell? That yeah. that is that is bell worthy, don't you think? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. The bell. You're not going to ring it. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. You're gonna be, you're gonna best Ryan, Kevin, at this pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> titanium. It, it was titan the price of titanium dioxide. I kind of lost track of that. I haven't been following that since, since uh, for a number of years. Um, Okay, I'm going to go next then. Um, and this goes to the GDP report. And it's three numbers. You ready? 2%, two percentage points, and two percentage points. A lot of twos. Right. So one of them is the direct, is one negative? No. The, right, well, one is like design. obvious. One is like the yeah. obvious. Yeah, inventories, two percent. Yeah. GDP was up two percent in the yeah. quarter. Inventories, inventories at, were two point one. They uh, added two point one. It was two point zero seven. I'm rounding yeah, down yeah. to two. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Well, it was then, okay. That was good. You're though. just wrong. Uh, so, uh, just so catch the listener up because they're not following this at all. So there was uh, the first two is GDP. Was you know bottom line up two percent annualized rate in Q three of twenty twenty one, obviously it's a very soft number. We'll come back and talk about that for a second. The second two percentage points is the 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 boost to GDP from uh, inventory. So inventories in Q two were uh, drawn down. The, the we added to inventories in Q three, so that swing added two percentage points. So which means. Without that swing, we would have had actually a ne slight squat. negative number, squat. right? Word, slight negative squat. number. Yeah, squat. Here, okay. <laughs> now here, this is where you get the the cowbell if you get this one right. And and I'm I think Ryan should get this. It's uh, the drag from it, autos. Ah, oh, you're you're right. Ring the bell. Ring the bell, Ryan. There you go. <laughs> that's that's pathetic. That bell. Come on. Is no, that not, the best? I'm not swinging it. I'm not because. Uh, oh, you're at listening. Home. You don't want to hear. Yeah, you're at home. Okay, you got a baby sleeping upstairs. Okay, so, <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. All right, I know we can't can't do can't sacrifice the baby to inside mm. economics. Right. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Absolutely maybe, not. We got to work on that. We got to you got to get your priorities straight over there, right? <laughs> yeah. 
So the second two percent, the, the third uh, statistic, uh, statistic of the two percentage points is the drag on GDP from the collapse in uh, vehicle production, motor vehicle production. And obviously that was pretty significant. Again, going back to global supply chains, it's not because there's no demand for vehicles. There's a lot of demand. It's that uh, vehicle producers just couldn't get the chips and other stuff they need to build the car. So yeah, you can't buy, you can't buy something you can't get. Yeah. Can't buy something you can't get. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. So, so GDP was soft in the quarter. Uh, and we're going to come back to that and talk a little bit about what we think that implies about the economy going forward. But before we do that, uh, Ryan, you want to go? What's your statistic? All right. 47.6%. 47. Has nothing to do with GDP. 0.6. Has it something to do with confidence? You're all, you're all, you're getting there. Okay. Uh, oh, I think I know. Is it the labor market differential in the conference board survey? Good guess. It was really strong. It was 45. 45. So that is the difference between the percent of people say that jobs are easy to get, less percent that say they're hard to get, which I think 45, isn't that like the highest in history or pretty close? The highest pretty in history? Pretty close. Mm-hmm. Pretty close. So that goes with to what's going on in the labor market. But so, okay, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the survey. Right. And I picked confidence because last week we talked about, some economists are worried that you know you got confidence dropping. This is a sign recession, but this number yeah. within Conference Board, yeah, pushes pushes back against that. Right. Well, the top line Conference Board survey was like one thirteen, so that's not mm-hmm. it. So it's got to be something in the bowels of the Conference Board Sorry, survey. It's really in the bowels. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a wild guess. It it's the sentiment measure for uh, for people in the lowest part of the income distribution. Chris, you got a guess? I don't. I don't. All right. I won't let you guys suffer. Okay, it's the percent ahead. of respondents planning to take a vacation. Oh, okay. Give us Back to where it was pre-pandemic. All right. Okay. But if you look within the percent that are, uh, their travels domestic, so the U.S., is already back up to where it was <laughs> pre-pandemic. And that was really, really strong. So- if people are really worried about a recession or their jobs, they're not planning vacations. Yeah, good point. Good point. And what was the, what was the low, if you go back into the teeth of the pandemic, do you recall? Low, low 30s, 30%. Low 30s? Is that about as low as it gets? Low 30s? Yeah. Probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, you're right, because there was a lot of voices, or at least a few voices, or maybe just one voice that I heard a lot saying recession, and that was because they were pointing to the collapse in confidence in the in, in the both the University of Michigan and the Conference Board Survey. But that was all Delta-related. The, the sentiment, decline in sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah that was that Blanche, Blanche Flower paper at NBR. Blanche Flower, right? yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, I, yeah, I got a call from a New York Post reporter, and she brought that up, and my immediate reaction was, no way. And that's, of course, the quote she put into the paper, and then Blanche Flower started tweeting, you know, things that I won't repeat. Um, well, this is why you shouldn't be on Twitter. I know, but I find it so intoxicating. Yeah, it's a very intoxicating thing. That's I can try you going so, down rabbit holes. So, <laughs> yeah. so at one point, I, I set up a Twitter account, but I've never tweeted once in my life. But but for some reason, I have like I haven't even checked. But last I checked, I had a few hundred followers, and I just love those people. Like I, yeah, I, I picture right. them every morning. You know, is today the day? Is today? <laughs> well, 
Kevin, I, I started, I did the same thing as you. 10 years ago, I got the hand, my handle and I hadn't used it for 10 years. And then two weeks ago, I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I've been doing it for two weeks now. And I find it, I find it interesting. I mean, the, you have to manage, I think, oh, excuse me. That's, I apologize for that. We, uh, you have to manage time wisely because you can get really sucked down into it. But uh, I find it quite interesting. Chris, are, um, you, on tw- are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Yeah. No, oh, no, no, Chris. Chris. Wait a second. Before Chris says that, I, this is a good time for me to advertise. At Mark Zandy. There you go. That's my Twitter handle. Go ahead, Chris. Are you on Twitter? I do have a handle, but I never use it. So. You're a LinkedIn guy. You're all over LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not on LinkedIn. Yeah. You got to choose one. Kevin, are you on LinkedIn? <laughs> no, no. No, yeah. No. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, uh, so, Chris, you're, so you're I, up. So I, I, oh, sorry. On the number, number thing, I have another one that I think is really like the most, if, if we're about to segue into talking about the economy, it's like the most interesting number to me out there is 62% right now. 62%. 60, 60%. And it's like, a, it's pretty wild that it's 62%. Really? Um, I don't know. Uh, just because you know, we're going slow, I'll just tell you. Yeah. So it's in the NFIB uh, survey. Oh, is that... Uh, the net percent having difficulty hiring a position. Yeah, it's people who say that they mm-hmm. that they are have you know can't find anyone mm-hmm. or having difficulty. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it, yeah, and it's about half and half. But but it's amazing how hard it is for people to find labor right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, did you want to? Uh, did you have a statistic you want to do quickly? Sure, I have a quick one. Point eight percent. And it's not housing related. It's not housing related. Oh, oh for one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> did it come out today? It did not come out today. It came Ooh. out this week. It's, it's the latest price for titanium dioxide. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's up the uh, daily increase. The daily increase. <laughs> I don't know, Chris. Far away. What is it? All right. So it was a little bit of a trick question. There were actually 2.8% that came out this week. But um, the one I was focused on is uh, core capital goods. Increase. Oh, that's a good one. Yep. Yeah. So non Oh, it's a good capital. one when Chris suggests it. But I use it if you, it's a terrible one to use. You know, there's some truth to that. I apologize, Ryan. You're right. You're right. I criticized you for using that. Like, He's grading on a scale. You know, yeah. I got a lower bar, Ryan. So. So, so tell us about that statistic, the 0.8. Yeah, so the point eight is, is up. It indicates strength, and uh, businesses it shows that businesses are investing in equipment, and this should uh, pay off in terms of ad- additional productivity later on. And I think I also think it demonstrates that businesses are not just sitting on their hands with the supply chain issues. They're investing. They're going to figure this thing out, and therefore the inflationary pressure should uh, subside uh, over the next few quarters. So. I viewed it as a as an optimistic statistic. It's you know at an all time high. Here's. Yeah, investment remains very strong, I, uh, quite strong. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, you said to me, I think it was in an email earlier this week that if GDP in Q3 came in negative, you thought there's a high probability we'd go into recession. It wasn't quite negative, although you know, uh, pretty it's all inventories. Yeah, yeah, GDP now is down to 0.2% right before the release. And um, that's pretty uncomfortably close to negative. And of course, the way the media covers recessions is two negative quarters, right? Like, so you could talk about all the indicators the NBER has. Uh, but 
I'm pretty wary about the fourth quarter because of the supply chain issues. Uh, you know, there are a lot of seasonals that are expecting big moves that aren't going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, yeah, I think it's kind of unlikely that Q4 is going to be above Q3. And now given the big inventory build, you know, that's probably going to be a reverse, right? Probably inventory is usually it's negatively correlated. So maybe it takes half a percent or a percent off. Uh, the fourth quarter. So you're probably looking at a negative fourth quarter is is more likely than it was the day before the GDP release. Really? And if it had been negative, I think you'd have had the two negative quarters. And, and so the NBR may or may not have decided that that was a recession if you had two tiny little negative quarters after mm-hmm. like, you know, those huge 6% quarters. But the media would have said recession for sure, right? Once they saw the second negative quarter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'll t- I, Ryan, do you have any uh, uh Views on the seasonals, uh, do you think they are going to play a role here in Q4? Yeah, and the seasonals for business investment and inventories aren't very favorable, but, you know, consumer spending is going to be pretty strong in the fourth quarter. Yeah. uh, Particularly since we're going to pull forward some of the holiday shopping into October, November. December is going to be a dud, but that alone should keep us north of zero. I mean, you you got personal consumption spending today, and it was pretty pretty strong and that was on top yeah. of a very strong number for uh for august so and october looks the, really strong and october looks so we're, you're uh, kevin you're coming into the quarter with a lot of consumer spending so it could be offset by inventory and maybe in trade i'm not sure you're going to see the same kind of drag that was a pretty big mm-hmm. drag from trade uh, it related to the inventories right you imported all this stuff sure and you know i if you're going to see some unwinding of inventory you might see some unwinding of the trade deficit. So I think it's going to be pretty tough to get a weaker number in Q4. Well, the, the thing is, too, that we have to see what happens to prices. And the price, the link between like nominal and real is really uncertain now in a way it hasn't been, you know, since you and I were kids, practically, right? Yeah. And so when you see like a really strong M3 durable goods number, you know, it may or may not be as strong as you think because the yeah. prices are like, again, like what Good we point. said about the, the um, price of residential construction. Uh, you know, that little pockets like that are going to take uh, things you thought like, and, and you see that with disposable personal income, right? Yeah. I mean, real disposable personal income took a pretty big fall. And that, of course, the transfer that was a lot of that reflected the the, the loss of the uh, supplemental UI in September. So you saw this big drive. Hey, the one thing I did see that I th- was encouraged by, and I'm just asking if I should be, the core consumer expenditure deflator. That, that's the key indicator that the Fed uses for kind of gauging inflation, that was only up two-tenths of a percent in the month. So you annualize that, and that's, you know, 2.4% roughly, so kind of where the Fed would want it. Is that – was there something going on there that's one-off, or does that reflect a moderation in inflationary pressures? That's – at face value, that's what it's saying. Is that – It's temporary. It is temporary. If you look at used car prices, in the next couple months are going to be nasty. So you think we're going to get a, or is this going to come back right back up? Yeah, and the house prices are starting to bleed in the, the core CPI. Yeah, that, kind of, so. the house prices are going to be the whole thing. Ryan's exactly right mm-hmm. because because those haven't budged yet. But like if you look at Case Shiller and everything and the residential construction costs, you know house prices should be going up, you know five six percent annual rate. Uh, but they've been two in, in the GDP release. The one interesting thing uh, there is though in the PCE, the the rent is just as much smaller per short percentage right. of the total index. I mean, that's going to matter for CPI for sure, uh, but much less so for PCE. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, yeah, it, okay. So I shouldn't, 
I shouldn't read too much into the pretty sanguine inflation number that we got for the for the month. It must indicate that things are mod- I mean, if you go back and look at the monthly increase in core consumer expenditure flare peak back in the summer, like April, May, June, in that period, and it must be it is moderating. But you're saying it's not. Yeah, moderating. you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to get. You know, usually you could forecast the core PC deflator in normal times of a ruler. It's going to be point two, point two, point two, but that's not going to last. You know, in the next few months, we'll get we won't get back to what we just saw earlier this year, but we'll get a you know an acceleration. Okay, let's let's end this kind of part of the conversation with just, and you don't have to play if you don't want to. What probability do you put on a a negative GDP print in the fourth quarter, Ryan? Ten percent. Ten. Chris. Ten percent. Chris. Chris always. Here we go again. No, no, that was my number. I thought Chris was going to write fifty. Might be right. Kevin, what do you say? Oh yeah, it's sixty percent. Really, sixty percent. Isn't that interesting? I mean, look at the look at the evolution of the GDP now for Q three. Yeah. Right. I mean, so everybody started the quarter thinking it was a seven percent quarter. Yeah. Right. And by the end, it was down to point two just because of the successive revisions and the inflation. So I think the nominal GDP, you and I probably will all, like we'll probably all agree on nominal GDP. But I think that there's going to be really? so much in prices that you could have. The, you the could Atlanta have, Fed yeah. measure is a they do a very good job, but they also include some survey based measures of economic mm-hmm. activity. And so that doesn't necessarily feed into GDP. And I think that's one reason they had a, a pretty big miss you know, compared to what GDP actually did. Just for the listener, the Atlanta Fed puts out a tracker based on the the data that's coming out every day and translating that into GDP for the quarter. We do the same thing, but that's what uh, Ryan means by the Atlanta Fed. So 60%, interesting. I'm I'm going to really blow your mind. Here we go. Zero probability. Uh, it's not uh, happening. You're going to go 50. Not happening. <laughs> not happening. It's not happening. Unless, unless the virus comes back, but I don't think that's, that's going to happen. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key, Correct. but it's not going to happen that fast like, under any scenario. But also, even with the virus, right, because uh, vaccinations have spread so much, I know there's still more people who should get vaccinated. Um, the, the, it's different now, right? Like the case fatality rate has gone way, way down. Um, and so I think that even if the virus, like there's this new AY 4.2 variant that people are concerned about, uh, that if that did take off, I still think that as long as the case fatality rate stayed low, that people continue to go to work and stuff, right? They I mean, it's not going to be a shutdown. They didn't do it with Delta, though. Delta yeah. did have an impact. Yeah, if you look at Delta these. Could, yeah. But, yeah, that's right. The, the, yeah. First, the first time through. But but the percentage okay. of people vaccinated is way higher now than yeah. it was, like, in June. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think each successive wave, unless the virus really goes off the rails here, is going to be less disruptive than the previous one. So it should be less disruptive. Yeah. There was a okay. really interesting Lancet article, by the way, on that, which is just that if the people who had COVID and have been vaccinated – have a kind of super immunity. I've heard that. Really, yeah. Yeah. I saw it, that. Yeah. So I think that they're, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and let's- One uh, last thing for Q4 okay. GDP, sure. why it's uh-huh. unlikely going to decline, is that the inventories in Q3 still fell. They just fell less than they did in the prior right. quarter. And just the way they calculate GDP is the change in yeah. the change. Exactly. So even if we get flat inventories, or we have to get a build at some point. That's going to really juice GDP because the stock is so low. It's just the, the stock yeah, of inventory is so low. Yeah. Inventory that makes sense in the, in really, the context really of supply. Yeah, yep. supply chain issues. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, let's uh, turn to the uh, the topic at hand, with top of mind, and that's the 
seems like this has been a topic for quite some time, the Build Back Better agenda, the proposal that uh, President Biden put forward a few months ago, kind of making its way through Congress now, feels like it's coming pretty close to the finish line, uh, meaning getting uh, passed into, into law, although, you know, that's still not a done deal. We'll have to see. Right now, the legislation is, uh, the proposal is sitting around $1.75 trillion over 10 years in uh, spending on various types of social programs, health care, housing, child care, uh, climate change, uh, just a range of things. Uh, and uh, there are uh, pay-fors in the proposal that the, at least the White House is scoring at something closer to $1.9 trillion. That's, uh, I think the biggest uh, pay-for is uh, more enforcement by the IRS to raise more revenue. There's uh, some uh, tax law changes on uh, taxing uh, foreign income for corporations, minimum, uh, global minimum tax. I also noticed, and I'm really curious, uh, uh, Kevin, in your view on this, on the uh, stock repurchases, there's a, a tax on repurchase of stock now. That's the first time I've seen that uh, kind of snake in. And uh, all of that's over a 10-year period. So a lot to digest there. Uh, but uh, uh, Kevin, uh, really interested in your broad sense of this. And uh, I guess if I had to ask you a, a very specific question, because I know where you're coming from, let me begin by saying, what is there anything in this that you like, uh, if you were king for the day, that you would, you know, say, okay, I think that's okay. And then maybe... To bookend it, what is it you really don't like uh, in the proposal? But well, kind of open-ended. Well, I'll the, let you go anywhere you want to go. Yeah, thanks, Mark. You know, you know I think that, that this is – I'll have to, you know, like two things after I say the next thing. But but one of the things I like is that the sort of um, huge increases in marginal tax rates across the board on, on corporations and individuals that were, like, originally contemplated by uh, President Biden – have pretty much the probabilities of, of those going through have gone to zero because, you know, cinema and mansions say they won't vote for tax increases like that. And and I think that like the original corporate proposal, it's something that a lot of people didn't really understand. But but like in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, our corporate side cost almost nothing. You know, I'm not saying cost nothing in a Jen Psaki kind of way. I'm saying cost nothing in a joint tax committee kind of way. The 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 international tax, like this guilty and beat stuff that we added so that mm -hmm. there's more tax on your foreign earnings, um, that just about offset the lower rate. And so that the JCT score for the corporate side of our proposal was just $300 billion in loss if you combine the international and, and the tax rate effect. And so... Uh, the original proposal was raising, you know, you know, like what, 1.9 billion just on corporates. I mean, trillion, trillion. on corporates yeah. over 10. Um, and and so what that means is that relative to President Obama's corporate tax code, uh, you know, what President Biden was proposing was keeping all the base broadeners that we put in and then jacking the rate back up, right? Which is one of the reasons why Milton Friedman was kind of opposed to tax reform in the way, by the way. He said, Oh, you're going to get a broad base and then they're going to lift the rate back up in the future. So it's exactly oh, yeah. what they were doing. And so, and so relative to Obama's code, it was a huge tax increase, corporate tax increase, uh, would have made us like by far the least competitive place. So I really like the fact that like people sort of came to their senses about that one because I think that would have really done, uh, quite a bit of harm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, in the spending, you know, I, I guess 
this the subsidies for green things. I've written a lot. Gabe Metcalf and I have a number of papers on how subsidies for green things, you know, tend to work. And and if you're an economist, then you think that if uh, you know you believe in Pigovian taxation, what we call it, right? Like so, if if there's something that's cleaner than something else, then subsidizing that isn't isn't bad economics at all. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that if I had to pick something that at least has some economic, makes some economic sense, it would be that. The, the thing that sort of disturbs me is that there are a lot of really cockamamie ideas, uh, floating around, um, or, or things that, uh, I view as like potentially like really long run harmful, uh, because of the precedents they set. Uh, and you, you mentioned a few, like, so, so cockamamie idea number one is they have an alternative minimum tax on book income. Um, and, and no kidding, Mark, uh, in the eighties, I wrote a paper about this, uh, with Trevor Harris, an accounting professor at Columbia university. But the basic idea is that, you know, tax books and accounting books are designed for different purposes. Tax books are designed for enforcement, accounting books for information revelation. And then if you combine the two, if if you make the tax uh, connected to things in the accounting statement, then you get all sorts of weird, strange behaviors. And, and in the paper that I wrote back in the day, because they were using the accounting books for tax purposes in some countries, we found things like um, corporations were inflating their earnings by not claiming investment tax credits. Mm. <laughs> right. Like so, so you just create like this. And, and so Europeans used to do things, something like this alternative uh, book tax, and they all stopped it because it created such weird incentives. And so, so that's like cock, a cocky baby idea. I think the excise tax on stock buybacks, right? Right now, like the dividend tax is, uh, you know, higher. Higher. It's going to be certainly uh, if, if proposals go through, potentially higher still. But, but what people do is they repurchase shares instead of paying dividends in order to take advantage of the lower capital gains rate. And if you want to level the playing field, you know, maybe you could argue that that an excise tax on stocks buybacks is making it so that there's not like a, a favored treatment of one type of given cash to shareholders over another. It's probably not like the end of the world, a 2% uh, excise tax on stock buybacks. It's not something oh, I, I propose. But but what, what companies would just do is they would retain their earnings uh, in, until, you know, a Republican comes in and takes it away. Right. And then they would uh, start buying back shares again. Um, there is a little bit of evidence, uh, but it's pretty old, but like Fazari, Hubbard and Peterson have a famous paper that when firms retain more earnings, uh, that they invest more. And I think that that's kind of like the motivation that people have, but our back and I have a paper in the journal of public economics that I think shows that that doesn't really work. Like the firms, that would be repurchasing shares. Um, you know, their investment isn't going to like think about it. Like Apple, Apple's investment in the U.S. isn't going to be affected if we penalize right. the repurchases, right? Uh, and so, uh, the mark-to-market tax uh, on billionaires—it's uh, about 107 pages. The proposal, uh, and and I actually read the whole thing because uh, mm. I'm a tax geek. You know, it's just, it's what what tax. You mean the widening proposal that they were debating? The widening proposal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 the thing is that. That that one is the, the thing that's disturbing about it uh, to me is that uh, so so first what what they're doing is they're basically saying it, when you have a capital gain then you should call that income and and you know in a Hague Simon sense you know we all learned in graduate school that it is kind of income you're changing wealth right and and so it's income in the year that you earn it and so you have to pay tax on it so like if the S and P five hundred goes up ten percent this year then you owe tax on that 
if it goes down 10%, then you can refund previous taxes and so on. And so, so that kind of taxing on accrual, um, our back has a famous AER, American Economic Review paper on that, um, how to do it so that it, it, you know, it's basically you tax at the end retrospectively, but you sort of level the playing field between accruals and other types of income. Um, and, and so the accrual part is something that's like exists in the literature, but the thing that's really, I, I think, positively creepy about the proposal is that the first year you qualify, uh, which could happen, and just you might even qualify, Mark, as successful as you guys are, but if you have three years in a row of $100 million- Chris, I should say, Kevin, Chris is the crypto king, so if anyone's okay, going to qualify, yeah. it'd be, it'd be So if Chris. you have three years in a row of $100 million in, in, in uh, pre-tax income, then you're a billionaire. You know, given that 50% of it's taken by the government, that really means if your after-tax income is $150 million in three years, then they're calling you a billionaire, right? Yeah. But the point is that when that happens, uh, do you know what they do? They they tax all your previous gains at the capital gains rate. And so and so the, the, the sort of accrual taxation that happens rolling forward is after basically a 28% wealth tax. Uh, which would be the hard, highest wealth tax in the history of the world. And now I, I think that that's one reason why, you know, moderate Democrats have sort of decided they're not interested in yeah, I think Wise's I... proposal. But but because uh, Cinema and Manchin um, have uh, decided that they won't endorse like actual sort of statutory rate increases, then they're feeling around for weird tricks to raise revenue. Uh, and that kind of stuff doesn't usually end well. And, and the final thought is this, you know, paying lots of auditors and everything to close the tax gap. Yeah. Uh, the, the tax gap is, is, you know, something that every presidential campaign that I've ever seen, like going all the way back to 2000, uh, Democrat or Republican, they always like pay for what they're doing by closing the tax gap. Because the tax gap is basically like there's probably like right now, I don't know what the current estimate is. Maybe you do, Mark, but it's probably there's about a trillion or two in taxes that are owed by people that aren't paid. And, and, and there's an estimate of that that's put out, I guess, by joint tax every year. Yeah. And, and so the tax gap is out there. It's like, say, let's just say it's a trillion. Um, and, and, and every campaign says, well, I'm going to increase enforcement and close the tax gap by 500 billion. And then I'm going to spend the 500 billion on like, you know, getting a dog for everybody because dogs are so wonderful. It's a, it's, it's a, so the point is just that the tax gap is kind of like the rogues way to pay for things because it never gets closed. Uh, and, and this idea that if we take this thing that's impossible to close and then stick a bunch of, you know, low skill, low paid IRS employees on the problem, like they're not going to close it. You're not going to get that revenue, whatever the joint tax committee says, the tax gap. I guess, I, although on that one, I guess it depends on what CB or against the joint committee on tax scores it at, I guess. Right. I mean, no, I think in the end, though, it depends on what happens. So maybe it'll help yeah. them pass it because the JCP oh, I see. says, you're oh, it's going to be effective. Is, yeah. <laughs> not gonna yeah. Interesting. Not gonna so it, it sounds like just listening to that, that on the tax side of this, you're least uh, concerned about the stock repurchase, the tax, the, the tax on stock repurchases or buybacks. Right. And I didn't get to the thing that I. I didn't get to the thing I'm most disturbed about, which I okay. think is really going to happen, which is the, yeah. the surtax on, on high incomes. You don't like that? Uh, well, yeah, because, because uh, you know, this, so, so it's a 5% surtax on uh, modified adjusted gross income above $10 million, 8% surtax on modified gross income over $25 million. And so, you know, that brings the top ordinary income tax rate to 48.8% in 2022. 
2025 when the 37% rate expires. Uh, it makes the U.S. have the highest marginal tax rate of any OECD country. And, you know, sure, maybe you don't care if, uh, you know, Michael Jordan or, or LeBron James is paying um, you know, marginal tax age, rate like way, that. Kevin, that yeah, I know. Jordan. Larry Bird. I'd go to Michael but, Jordan, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But hey, Michael Jordan's still probably making 10 million a year, is all I'm saying. But, yeah, but, the, but the point is just that the, there are a lot of small businesses in that category that employ a lot of people. And so it's a very big tax increase on businesses. In the U.S., probably about half the people in that category are businesses, I would say, um, so, you know, past the rarities. So, I mean, uh, are, is there any uh, tax that you would be in favor of to generate revenue to pay for uh, expanded government services or even just to close deficits and debt, for that matter? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I was a big proponent of the border adjusted business cash flow tax. Um, you know, it, it's basically that plus a payroll tax is sort of like a value added tax, which is a super efficient way to raise revenue. Um, it's pretty much what everybody else does. So, so if you look at tax history around the world, uh, countries all around the world have started to take inefficient income taxes and replace them with super efficient consumption taxes. They don't even have to be, as David Bradford taught us, they don't even have to be regressive because you can combine other transfers with the uh, consumption taxes so, so that, you know, it works out for low income people or low consumption people. Uh, and so I think that if we took the corporate uh, tax and basically modified it so that it was, you know, border adjusted business cash flow tax, as, you know, we proposed uh, uh, or, or that before I went into the White House, as was proposed by uh, Kevin Brady. Uh, then you've basically taken the corporate tax and turned it into a value-added tax. Uh, and then at that point, the distortion from it is is much different from the, the current structure. So if I absolutely had to have revenue, that's how I do it. Just one other tax I wanted to ask about is the carbon tax. Well, how do you feel about that, carbon taxation? Yeah, carbon carbon taxation, uh, you know, I've written a lot about this, that, yeah. that if you uh, take the carbon tax revenue, the carbon tax is... Uh, kind of like a value-added tax, uh, and, and it's sort of hitting a little bit of everything because there's embodied energy in just about everything. And so if you took the carbon tax and then used that revenue to reduce uh, more distortive uh, marginal tax rates, uh, then um, you know, if you look at the academic literature, there are people who show that you can actually like make GDP go up you know, irrespective of any climate benefit. Right. Like because the carbon tax is relatively efficient. And so if you take the inefficient taxes and reduce them with the carbon tax revenue, then you can come up with a trade that makes sense. And I think it's sort of a metric of how broken politics is that um, that hasn't happened. Right. Like so. So let's just say that the Democratic Party is super concerned about climate change um, and the Republican Party is less concerned. I don't think that that's a terrible characterization. It's probably yep. pretty close. Yep. Uh, and so but if you really you know, believe uh, Greta and you think that it's like an existential threat to the world and we got to do something about it, then if you're a Democrat, you basically say, OK, you know, $60 a ton carbon tax, you know, go to Mitch McConnell. Uh, you let me have the carbon tax. I'll let you have the revenue. You, you cut whatever taxes you want. Uh, and, and if they did that, then GDP would go up. <laughs> it'd be good for the economy and it'd be good for the climate. But the fact that we can't make that trade so that when Democrats are proposing uh, policy in this space, they always want to take the money and spend it on their pet projects, right? So they're not ever like dickering with Republicans over it. And I think that 
if I thought that there was an asteroid coming to hit the planet and you thought that there there isn't, but I was really sure the asteroid's going to hit the planet, then I'd, I'd give you whatever you want for me to like send Bruce Willis up there to blow up the asteroid, right? <laughs> and, 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 and the fact that they're not doing that on climate change suggests to me that the Democrats aren't serious about it. Or they're, they're trying everything they can given the politics of the carbon tax, right? I mean, that I think that's oh, yeah. where we, I actually think that's where we ultimately land. I mean, as, yeah, because it's a, it's a big tax on increase on coal. Yeah. As an yeah. example. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Kim Metcalf and I in the early nineties did some input output analysis as probably somebody else's updated, but, but a $25 a ton carbon tax just to increase the uh, price of gasoline and home heating oil by about 11%. Uh, but it increased the price of coal by 85%. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and so basically a carbon tax is a tax on coal. I mean, yeah. It goes away, actually. I mean, pretty quickly. Yeah. It, yeah coal. Kind of carbon it's tax. a huge tax on coal. Yeah. yeah. yeah very, it makes it very difficult. Well, of course, that, that's where all the CO2, a lot of the CO2 is coming, coming from. Uh, I, I, there's one thing I wanted to ask you on tax policy. I've been dying to ask you because you, you were instrumental. You were, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is an exaggeration, but you were the architect or an architect of the Trump tax cuts. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate, at least in the circles that I'm in and the research that I'm reading about whether those tax cuts had any kind of benefit, except for the near term kind of demand side, you know, cut a check to corporations, they, you know, spend some of it, yeah. get some juice. Is there any long term benefit? And you saw the IMF paper, Brookings came out with some work kind of saying, no, I, we can't see it. Uh, there's no, no benefit. Yeah, How do you respond to that? There's some pretty tendentious stuff that's not very academically sensible. Um, I, had, I don't know if I've read the IMF thing. They're usually pretty good. They have a good tax team. But um, you might recall uh, that uh, Glenn Hubbard and Jason Cummins and I had a paper that looked at the 86 Tax Act that was published in Brookings. It's probably been cited a thousand times as uh, you know, one of the early papers that used a natural experiment to identify the uh, impact of tax policy on you know, capital investment. And what Glenn and I have done um, with, you know, my person who worked with me at CEA, Tyler Goodspeed, is we've uh, basically taken everything that we did for the 86 Tax Act and applied it to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we're just finishing that paper up right now. But we're finding actually pretty much uh, similar uh, estimates to what we got with the 86 tax act. So there was a big positive effect on capital spending uh, that was, again, the, uh, the identification strategy that we used back then, which we haven't changed at all. So you couldn't argue that we're data mining in any way. We're just using just, just for the listener, the identification strategy, meaning kind of there's all these moving parts and you're trying to tease out the, the tease out the tax effect. Yeah. Right. And so, and so what, so what we did back then is, is so the problem with, finding tax policy effects is that Congress tends to like have an investment tax credit in a recession and then take it off when you're out of a recession. And so if you're looking over time, then it looks like investment tax credits make investment go down because investment tax credits tend to happen when investment's low because the policy is endogenous. And so making it so that you can control for that is the whole challenge. And I think the first paper in the literature that uh, did that uh, effectively and solved the problem, Auerbach and I actually wrote it. Um, and then a year or two later, Glenn Hubbard and I did a follow-on to that paper. But it was basically had a simple identifying uh, thought, which is that Congress is, let's just say, too stupid 
to like, cause there are lots of different types of assets. There's cars, there's computers, there's trucks, there's blast furnaces, so stuff like that. And Congress is too stupid to jigger the cross-section variation in the tax rate on computers versus cars when they have a big tax reform or an investment tax credit. But the, depending on the asset life, if you have something that appreciates quickly or over a long, long time, then a tax change will have different effects on different on the incentive to buy a computer or a car or anything like that. And and so uh, taking the uh, broad, the BA is really, really broad asset uh, detail. Um, it's, it's now up to like almost 200 assets. And then estimating the change in uh, or tax policies likely affect on that asset. Then you end up with like a prediction of what happens to like 200 different assets like whether they went up by a lot or a little after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and you could estimate the tax policy effect yeah, looking at how all, the, all those things vary. And and uh, and when you do that, you know, we're getting uh, you know really big effects of the you Tax Cuts it. and Jobs Act. Yeah, yeah. you can, you can, it's, it's really obviously in the data, just like it was in the Brookings paper that we wrote a while ago. The, the people who are saying um, that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, had no effect – um, there, there are a lot of people who have, who have said it that are partisans, not like smart economists like you guys. But, but there's a common mistake that I see people make, and it's basically uh, that first of all, uh, the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed uh, in December, right? And then it was effective, or maybe it was even early January. It's effective in January, but when it was being debated. Uh, the the expense twenty eighteen right it was January yeah 20, 2017 or January twenty eighteen or December twenty seventeen yeah, yeah. yeah right. um, it, so so this is actually something that that I insisted on while we were doing it but but if you basically say we're going to have expensing which means that if you buy a machine that's got really favorable tax treatment then the whole time that you're debating that uh, then if people wonder whether uh, that's going to happen. Suppose they really think in September that by next January, there's going to be expensive. Well, then what you might do is not buy any capital in the fourth quarter because the tax treatment is so wonderful if you can make it to the first quarter. And you don't want to create a crater as you're having a tax policy debate. And so what we did is that when we started the tax policy debate, we said that expensing will be retroactive to today. Uh, like the day we're starting the debate, mm -hmm. like September mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, so that we'll give you that favorable treatment if we pass it. Uh, and, and so that, that way you don't get, uh, you know, the crater. But, but in this case, the tax rate went from 35% to 21%. And so as it became obvious that the tax change was going to happen, then firms saw that if they timed the investment into the fourth quarter of 2017, then they would subtract a dollar and then get a 35 cent benefit because they'd save a 35% tax rate. Whereas if they in January subtracted the dollar, they'd get a 21 cent tax benefit. Oh, I see. And so they piled up the investment in the fourth quarter as much as they could. And so you got this really, really big spike in investment uh, in the fourth quarter. And what a lot of people do who say that, oh, we didn't get the spike that they expected is that they don't attribute the fourth quarter increase to the tax cuts. But they should. Uh, and, and, and the other thing is that the investment, um, what, a, what a tax, uh, the other conceptual error people make is that what, it, what a tax policy does is it sets the level of investment. And so if you're in an equilibrium, say, then people are investing just enough to replace depreciation, just say. And then all of a sudden you have a tax cut. And so that people want to invest 10 percent more. 
So when they invest 10% more, the level of investment goes up by 10%. Now, investment is more than depreciation. So the capital stock is growing, the economy is growing. And if investment stays at that higher level, then you're going to continue to grow until you're, you know, the capital stock is so much bigger that depreciation and investment are equal again. Uh, and, and so the idea is that once the investment level jumps, then in the models that we use to model what happens after the tax cuts, that it doesn't jump again. You're not looking for accelerating investment growth. Once you get the investment level high relative to depreciation, then you get the capital stock growth you need to drive wages and economic growth. And so, you know, the investment to capital ratio jumped, uh, jumped a lot and then stayed there. But like in the second year after the tax cuts, investment growth was kind of squat. Right. Uh, but it was at a high level. And so the capital stock growth was actually there. And, and, and so, so, yeah, I think the, the, the tax cuts worked. And, and as you recall that the, uh, you know, we, we said like $4,000, uh, it was going to be like the wage increase for the, uh, typical family. And, mm-hmm. and it ended up being about $6,000, you know, after having like eight years under President Obama of not really growing at all. And so I think that the stuff that we said was going to happen up until like January before COVID happened just about the way that I expected it. And again, uh, maybe I'll come back on the podcast a few months from now, but Glenn and I are, are about You're to publish produce that, that paper. paper. That'd be very interesting yeah. to see. That'd yeah, we're, great. We're, we're about done with all the tables. So it'd be out now if I wasn't uh, basically behind and you know making my co-authors angry at me. <laughs> Did you come back on the advanced estimate of Q4 GDP? Oh, oh yeah. okay. Yeah. That, that's a good one. Yeah, we'll have you if you're if you're game. That'd be great. Hey, uh, I know we've taken a lot of your time, and thank you for that. Just uh, one last uh, topic to hit on is deficits and debt. You know, there's obviously been a lot of debate around uh, how big a deal it is that we are running deficits and debt, uh, higher higher uh, debt loads. How big a deal is it in your mind? I mean, can we run these larger deficits? Uh, and, and what are the constraints on that? You know, what are you looking for to say, hey, this is becoming a real problem? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, first of all, the deficits have skyrocketed because of COVID and that, you know, it happened. To, you know, so, so I mean, some people are saying, oh, it's all President Biden's fault. That, as you know, like he added maybe 25 percent at the end, <laughs> right, compared to all the stuff that came in during COVID. And so that, you know, we are looking at really high levels that you know, are a problem. Uh, and mm-hmm. the the bottom line is that uh, if you spend a dollar, then eventually you have to, somebody has to be taxed to pay it, right? Uh, and even if you don't pay it back, then you at least have to pay the interest on the dollar. And so in present value, you've got to tax the guy to pay the interest on the dollar. It's sort of the same, whether you pay it back or not, right? Like somebody's got to pay the tax if you spend a dollar. And um, the literature is clear that the uh, marginal cost of a dollar of tax revenue is about a dollar fifty. We had a big uh, report on this in the economic report of the president when I was CEA chair, uh, and so all that extra spending, the trillions and trillions of extra spending, has accumulated debt that's got to be paid back with taxes, and the cost of that is about fifty percent of the increase in spending in dead weight loss that we'll have from the higher taxation in the future. And so, yeah, there's going to be a big price to pay, but I think that. If we hadn't done PPP and all the other things that we did, the you know I I for one was very much in favor of the expanded UI benefit because for most of the COVID year 2020, you know people weren't allowed to go to work right yeah 
Right. I mean, so like, how is that going to affect, you know, you know, so I think by the end, maybe the benefits are having effect on the unemployment rate. But I think that getting people money to bridge them to the other side of the, you know, worst pandemic recession in U.S. history made sense. But the cost of it is going to be severe. Uh, there's going to be, you know, trillions and trillions and deadweight loss from the higher taxes that we're going to have to pay in future years to pay for it. I guess the issue is as long as interest rates remain as low as they are, it's pretty hard to connect the dots in the minds of people that deficit and debt really matter, right? So, you know, what do you, how do you, what do you show to the, to the, to the electorate that this is why we need to do this? So, uh, well, you know, I, I think that it's not just the interest rate, but it's just actual the money that you owe, right? Uh, so, 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 but, so but we, the debt service owe... is so low. If you get, you I mean, like right yeah, now, the debt yeah. service is one one and a half percent of GDP. If you could issue a console at a zero percent interest rate, then you wouldn't have to worry about it, right? Um, but that, that's like, I have a hard time thinking that that's going to be a market equilibrium. In in the end, um, so what you're saying is rates will rise at some point, and rates, at that point, that'll be. Yeah, and then with inflation to the sort of five percenting range, yeah. um, the natural time in the cycle when that would happen would be right about now. Right? Although you know, market expectations are for inflation to be very low, right? They're two. Well, they're going up. The expectations, right? They expect, they've been ratcheting up. No, I, I don't like know, Ryan. Are they? Have they been? No, yeah. they're they've risen re- recently along with oil prices, but the five-year, five-year forwards are just around their historical around average. two and a half, I think. Yep. So, and yeah. when you adjust that for the CPI, it's you know, it runs a little bit ahead of the PCE deflator. Yeah. Expectations are right where the Fed would want them to be. Yeah. But anyway, I guess that's what's going to, it's going to take is for inflation, interest rates to really rise in a sustained way for. for right. But, but there's, on. there's this other thing, which you might recall, like some um, debates I had, it's like around 2000 with Peter Orzag and Bill Gale. Um, but there was um, like, it's like a consensus among say Democrat. Uh, or, or left-leading economists that deficits had a huge effect on interest rates. Uh, and um, so therefore, like the Bush tax cuts were going to kill the economy because of the interest rate response. You might remember that. Yeah. Uh, and and, uh-huh. and uh, I did a bunch of work with Charlie Calamaris on that topic and very much convinced myself back in 2000 that de- the link between deficits and interest rates is almost not there. Uh, and part of the reason is that the interest rate that the U.S. pays is set in a global market. And at the margin, a little bit of deficit that we have more or less this year is going to be low relative to the global stock of debt. <laughs> right. It's sort of like the impact of U.S. oil production on the price and global price of oil. It's going to be hard to get it to be a really big number. Right. Because we have a relatively small share of global oil production. Well, the same is true for debt. Yeah, we have a probably a bigger now. Share of global debt. I think it's a little bigger now. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, but 20, still, it's, it's twenty-eight kind of, trillion. I think out of yeah, well, so whatever. Are kind of set yeah. in the global market yeah. is the point. Yeah. It's and yeah. so, but in the end, it's the fact that you have to pay it back. Well, speaking of debates, we had a great debate. I thought, and thank you for oh, inviting yeah. me. Thanks. We went. We that were down in fun. Dallas. I think it was a couple of months ago now, and we talked. We debated ESG. And uh, if folks are interested, you should Google that. Uh, do, uh, yeah, the Hassett. debate is online. National yeah, Review. it's a great debate. Yep. Hassett, Zan- well, I, en- I enjoyed it tremendously. I had, a lot of fun. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. It's about ESG investing. And I think the premise or the proposition, I should say, was e- uh, ESG investing will, was it undermine the American economy or something, about like something that, along yeah. that? And you yeah, were yeah. 
defending the proposition. And of course, I was taking the other side of the uh, of the proposition that it would right. And I had a very friendly audience because I was we were in Texas, right? And so there was uh, nobody in the friendly. audience, the ex ante. Yeah, there's nobody in the audience that ex ante wanted to side with you, right? I, you probably changed the minds, but although but you it was, were they were so gracious, you were an unfriendly crowd. <laughs> they were so gracious, though. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it, and I want to thank you for inviting me. But that's that that's a topic we should tackle at Inside Economics is ESG investing because uh, you know obviously Moody's. Uh, is very, as you know, that's why you probably invited me. Yeah. Is very involved in ESG invest investment, so a uh, very important thing. But I do want to thank you, uh, Kevin, really Thanks for coming on, and really appreciate your perspective and and uh, the time you spent with us. And just uh, to remind everyone, um, uh, please, if uh, we're looking for future topics that you're interested in, so go to. Uh, uh, economy.com there's a, a button there for inside economics and let us know you know what topic you're interested in and of course we'll we'll listen to that and uh ryan chris anything else you want to say did i miss anything should i be telling the listener any oh we want you to go rate us uh you know uh apple or uh spotify let us know uh give us a rating uh we appreciate that uh, anything else guys no what's your okay. <laughs> I'd like to endorse the uh, Hassett dog for everyone uh, proposal. <laughs> second, I, have I second it. <laughs> I have three. <laughs> oh, well, do you get to choose the dog you uh, of, or is it determined for I don't you? Know. Okay. You should, probably, you should probably let me choose. You should let me choose for you. Like I'm a big government guy. Okay, there you, <laughs> you gotta go. pass the bill first, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, let's pass the bill first. Okay. Well, thanks everyone. Uh, till next week. Take care now. <laughs> <laughs>